electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a trillion dollars September to remember. The major warning from one market watcher why he is calling for a 20% pullback in big tech. Plus, Ford topping the tape today. The automaker giving new details on its all-electric F-150 pickup. How our traders are playing this name. And later, airline CEOs back at the White House today looking for more money. But we found 67 billion reasons why. And that might not fly. We begin tonight with breaking news on the banks. Let's get straight to Wilford Frost with all the details. Will. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, so as we were just discussing on, on Closing Bell, uh, the banks uh, finding out this evening what this uh, extra stress test that they'll go through this fall uh, will, will be and uh, the particular terms of it. There will, in fact, be two severe recessions they'll be tested against as opposed to normally one. But it's possible that we could interpret those severe uh, recessions as not as bad as they could have been given what a crazy year we're in. Of course, they're always tested against a severely adverse scenario. Uh, the one that they were tested over the normal stress test in June saw unemployment, for example, spiking to 10 percent. This test has two versions of the unemployment. One is that it spikes to 12.5 percent and then dips more quickly to 7.5%. The other one is that it spikes to 11%, but then dips more slowly to 9%. And both of those factors are perhaps highlight that the severely adverse scenario didn't get that much worse, given the year that we're in, uh, than perhaps uh, it could have got. So from 10%, for example, on the unemployment uh, to, to just 11 or 12 is not that much worse. Uh, that also will include a, a stock market decline by 30%, the VIX spiking up to 70 for example, house prices uh, falling 26%, all, of course, uh, headline-grabbing uh, changes, uh, but, again, not perhaps that much worse than they could have been uh, given the, the fact that uh, we already knew this extra set of tests was coming. As I pointed out as well uh, earlier, there was one line that does stand out at the end of Randy Quarles' statement uh, that says uh, the board had required banks to take several actions to preserve their capital levels in the third quarter of this year, which, as we know, meant that they uh, had to suspend uh, buybacks, though continue their dividends. And the, the final statement says the board will announce by the end of September whether those measures to preserve capital will be extended into the fourth quarter. I would say that the street's expectation is that they will be extended into the fourth quarter. Uh, that might well still be the case. But I, I guess just a tiny glimmer of hope there that maybe uh, buybacks will be allowed, if not in the fourth quarter. We'll find out the answer to that very soon by the end of this month, perhaps again uh, early next year, which will be a big boost as and when that's allowed again uh, for this sector. Okay. Wilf, thank you. Wilford Frost with all the latest details on the next stress test that the banks will undergo. Uh, Karen Feinerman, what, what is your take on all of this? The other, the other piece of this is that they've passed with flying colors pretty much back in June, and you wonder whether or not they're going to pass under this second wave scenario, because that's effectively what this is. It's modeling a second wave of coronavirus to hit the economy with uh, ensuing spikes in unemployment as well as declines in GDP. Right. And they have reserved well, well, well in excess of the actual loan losses that they've actually seen so far. So I think they'll fare pretty well. I was feeling when they had the uh, initial, you know, when they weren't allowed to do buybacks and there was some constraints on what kind of dividend they would pay, it seemed to me like that could persist for the rest of the year. So I don't think that would be a big deal. I think um, 
you know, for, for somebody like Wells Fargo, who already had to cut their dividend, I think they'll be able to probably continue their dividend. But to me, I mean, you can't own these stocks just for one quarter's dividend. Really, the whole question in the valuation of these stocks is, how are the reserves going to, pair, going to compare with the actual loan losses that they have? And so I think they've reserved a lot and will continue to reserve a lot. And I think they will weather the storm. And then investors will start to look at a more normalized earnings than what we have now. Even in the situation we have now, with the giant reserves, these banks are still making money. So I'm on JP Morgan and Bank America, and uh, I started adding Wells Fargo um, around the stress test. Uh, and I'm long City, which lately hasn't been great. I wonder if City will face some additional restraints. Um, but I think that they will do fine. Dan, what, what's your answer to Karen's big question, whether or not the banks have reserved enough? You know, it's funny, Karen and I offline, not on the show, we actually talk every once in a while, people. We had a long conversation about the banks yesterday, and I agree with a lot of what she said. And I actually think the news today sets up pretty well. If you're trying to bridge this gap, buying a sector that might benefit from an economy that's doing much better as we get closer to a vaccine. That being said, I will just tell you, if you listen to what Fed Chair Powell had to say about interest rates, you know, interest rates basically at zero or negative, if you think about it, is not great for the banking sector right now. If you think of some of the housing data, it seems near peak, right? We're in the middle of this pandemic. and We're seeing this activity because of that. We've seen the refis because of the rates are really lower. So you put all that together and it doesn't really make for a great near term picture for the banks. That being said, I think this is the one group that if we get close to a vaccine on the other side of this year and unemployment does start heading back down to mid single digits, investors are going to pile into this group. I'm just saying that I think you have to be prepared for the sort of price action you saw in Citigroup this week down 10% in a straight line if you're buying any of these names because there are some tape bombs to come out for them in the near term. Let's say the banks pass these stress tests, as I, I, I would think many investors believe would be the case, Guy. Is that the seal of approval? There are very few industries out no. there that the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve will actually stress test the various economic scenarios. And here we have it. It's being handed to you on a yeah, silver platter, and, and potentially. You're, and you're, talk, you're talking to it through the prism of, is it, that, will that mean the stocks go higher? And I think the short answer is probably no. You know, I, my sense is, you know, it's interesting past with flying colors. That speaks to a bygone era when Victoria ships would go past the port with their flags flying. I just thought I'd throw that out because, quite frankly, <laughs> I looked it up while Wolf was talking. You know, with that said, I don't think that's the catalyst to buy these banks. The catalyst, in my opinion, is the fact that a name like Citi is trading at 63% of tangible book, and that's the levels we saw probably in 2008, 2009. So even if we see something incremental on the margins or by some miracle we start to rotate from growth to value, I think the banks will rally. It doesn't mean the banks are in great shape. It just means that they're at a point now, their inflection point, where any little bit of good news, I think they go higher. Yeah, Tim? Uh, what do I do with these flags? I mean, I, I think that the, the, the pirate's flag has been flown by Citibank. And so Guy pointed out the price to book. You know, it, it's, it's a 4.5% dividend yield for, for a company that, that arguably has had the, the most lax uh, risk controls. And that's what it's getting brought up on. And that's, those are the, you know, essentially the perceived punishment. But for all the people that love to hate the banks, uh, I, I know it's not been a straight line. But, but the, 
the, the downtrend um, you know, over the last couple of days is still holding the uptrend that's all the way from those March lows. I mean, banks have been slowly grinding higher. I know it doesn't seem like it, but look at JP Morgan. Look at the XLF. For those that don't believe the XLF is, is an accurate indicator, Karen talked about loan loss provisions. Uh, JP Morgan's numbers last quarter were fantastic, and their capital markets business was at record levels. And they, they basically used that money, put it into their loan loss provisions for a rainy day. I, I, I do think um, uh, you know, what has been said about where banks are positioned, um, they, they are positioned on the other side. I don't know that we need to get to the other side to make them an investment you can't have today, of which I, I'm talking my book. I get the point about grinding higher, but there is an opportunity cost to holding banks. You miss out because the capital's in banks and not in, let's say, an Amazon or not in a Microsoft or not in a Facebook, Karen, um, some of which you do hold. And so there's a trade-off here. So your, your time frame has to be, I would imagine, much longer for this to actually play out. So does it keep getting longer by the day or do you think that time frame is, is shortening? <laughs> Um, well, it is short. It's both been long, and every day we get closer to a vaccine or some, clo you know, some version of a new normal. Um, that's good. I think that um, to own only, uh, you know, the sort of MAGA or whatever else is included in there these days is that's a riskier portfolio. I want to be diversified. I like the banks. Um, clearly, this year that hasn't been the right place to be. But I feel like the risk reward in terms of what the price to future earnings and the price to book, particularly for a city uh, and a Bank America, a little more for JP Morgan, but it's worth it. It's the premier name. Um, is when that value trade happens, I don't know when that is, I will be very happy having a meaningful chunk of the portfolio in these names. Liking the banks, though, Tim, is a very different proposition and believing that banks will be able to weather more credit losses in the future is a very different proposition from saying, I like financials in general, I like credit card issuers, for instance, et cetera. I mean, we're talking about banks that have lots of reserves, right? So, so for investors out there who are thinking, oh, well, maybe this is the all clear here and financials can actually weather this next wave if there is a wave, that's not necessarily the, the truth or the answer for, for all of financials across the board. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, so so uh, loan law, sorry, stress tests and passing stress tests really has not been a catalyst to banks. The the only part about this um, is when we've had capital adequacy ratio tests and banks have been able to press it, press it and see how much they could actually give back. Um, those have been drivers to see stocks go higher. But no, this this is uh, part of living in a world where banks, albeit have much less regulatory uh, pressure on them than they did in the previous administration, still have uh, the pressure that comes. One of the things that the Fed also, I just for people that are looking for uh, the yield curve to be somewhat of a catalyst for banks, uh, I do think what you're hearing out of the Fed ultimately is that the short end is pinned. Um, and, and while we have seen rates on the longer end stay uh, certainly in this range, if anything, the messaging is that the yield curve is going to get somewhat steeper. It's all relative. Um, but, but again, and then on the opportunity cost, you're right. To this point, it's been a terrible trade to be long banks against, you know, not even short, but not to have been invested in Amazon, Apple, Netflix, NVIDIA. But, but it's about tomorrow, and it's about where we are in that trade relative to all the bad news you've endured investing in banks. And frankly, if their balance sheets are okay, I'm not sure why you wouldn't want to be in that trade tomorrow. All right. Back to today and the market action that we saw. It was another tech takedown. The Nasdaq falling for a second straight day. 
Check out some of these big losses. In fact, Apple now down more than 20 percent from its all-time high hit just two weeks ago. Facebook, Amazon, Tesla, Alphabet, Microsoft also down double digits from their records. So does trouble in tech land mean more pain for the broader markets? I'm going to go to Dan, since you've been on top of that MAGA trade, as it's known, for so long. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I, I think it's, it's a tough setup here, right? In the end of the summer, August was this just melt up in technology shares, you know, up more than 10% in the NASDAQ. And we we're sitting here every day trying to explain it. And there was no explanation. It was just a panic buy there. So, you know, they turn the calendar. It's September. Wake me up when September ends because this thing is not done going down. You know, if you look at Apple in particular, you just said it's down 20%. That was a massive blow off top from July 31st when they reported their fiscal Q3 earnings. That stock had gained, I don't know, 35%. It had gained $650 billion in market cap. And then investors are selling the crap out of it because they didn't get a 5G phone that no one thought was going to come in September anyway. So it was really fraud. I think these stocks probably round trip a lot of these moves back to the breakout. I would not be surprised to see Apple before their 5G announcement trade back to 95, where it was trading prior to their earnings. And there's a lot of really bad charts. I know we're going to talk about it afterwards. There's two levels that are really important. Breaking that uptrend from the March lows, they've all done it, okay, all the major ones. Mm -hmm. And then getting back to that breakout level, I think we're going to see that next for a lot of these big names. Guy, would you agree with that? And I guess the next question that a lot of people might have is, let's say Apple does go back to, to 95 before the next phone is launched. Does that mean that Apple will recoup and go back to record highs after that phone is launched? Because that would seem like a great buying opportunity. Pro- Probably. I mean, because that's historically exactly what's happened. I mean, Dan can wax poetic about this like nobody else. But you go back over the last five or six years and you've seen meaningful peak to trough declines in Apple, 38 percent, 34 percent. And to your point earlier, we're at 20% now. So if you were to get down to that 95 level, you know, that probably gets us to, what, 28 29 30% move to the downside. We've seen it before. It's not like it hasn't happened. So, yes, I do think it, it's a huge buying opportunity. I think it's going to get there. And I think in six months from now, we'll be talking about, remember that opportunity you had in Apple. Facebook, by the way, and I think Karen would agree, is another one. You go back to the summer. 245 is where it broke down from when all those advertisers pulled, and 245 will be support now. I mean, it stocks 253, I think. The one that really defies logic and I think is trying to tell you something is Qualcomm, which was actually higher today and is just off the recent highs that we've seen. So, you know, take a look at Qualcomm, and maybe that's um, indicative of the, the underlying strength in that name. Well, the belief that that these tech stocks, high-flying tech stocks, could check back to their recent lows, Karen, and then bounce back and reclaim all-time highs would imply that a rotation is not a permanent thing, that this rotation is, is a blip on the radar screen, and that there will be a return to growth and a dump of value. Uh, well, that's a good point, although all stocks could go up, right? Um, so that could happen. But I think that, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the drawdown now. So... Today was sort of no man's land in terms of the sell-off. I would like to buy some more Facebook. Guy's right. It's getting close. I'd like to see more panic. Um, The VIX sort of closed actually on its lows, about 26 and change. I would have thought on a day like today we would see the VIX higher. And um, so we didn't. And I would like to see it a little more panicky so I could buy some more of these. I do believe they will ultimately go past the recent highs. When? I don't know. But I think given this market, given where rates are, given what the Fed is telling you, 
And I do think after the election we will have a stimulus. Brian Kelly was right. I give him a lot of credit for really being concerned that we wouldn't have one before the election, and that's looking more likely every day. But I think um, there, there is a floor there under this market. So I will buy more. Our next guest says a major tech crash is coming beyond what we've already seen. He's positioned for a 20% pullback in the NASDAQ. Joining us on the fast line, Larry McDonald, editor of the Bear Traps Report and a CNBC contributor. Larry, so 20% down. What's the catalyst for it? Hey, Melissa. Great to be with you guys. Um, well, first of all, the Fed tipped their hand uh, in really shocked asset, assets this week. All they had to do, all they had to do was say the balance sheet is on cruise control for 12 months. That's all they had to do. Why didn't they do it? Well, they didn't do it because they're trying to send a signal to Washington. Okay. So what... what so that was a catalyst? We're already seeing the 20% decline in motion is what you're saying. Well, in other words, when, you, when, you're, when you're long stocks today, let's think of deflation bets. We've been through 10 years of Brexit and trade wars and COVID. So the entire investment community is set up essentially in deflation bets, bonds and stocks. You know, as of a week ago, there was $10 trillion in, in tech stocks, which is mainly a deflation bet. And now the Fed, they're not, they could have promised us more accommodation. They're not. So they're concerned about uh, Washington and potentially a, they, they would like to see more fiscal help. They're concerned about potentially a vaccine. So the fact that they're not offering and guaranteeing us accommodation, the richness in these tech stocks are, are absolutely going to collapse. We are going to see... In our lifetimes, in our careers, this will be the greatest migration of assets the next 12 months from tech into not just valuing materials. Look at the transports. Transports are outperforming the NASDAQ by 12% this month. The XME materials outperforming the NASDAQ by 11 and value, Russell value versus Russell growth, outperforming by close to 7 So this, is, this migration is probably the first or second inning. So how are you positioned? You're short QQQs, I imagine, short a bunch of high-flying tech stocks, and long what? Anything in the market? I mean, if it's the greatest migration of value in this market, where, where's it migrating to? We love uh, tech resources is, is one name, and, and especially Mosaic. So both in the resource area and Mosaic in the ag space, you, you just have, you have too many people in these deflation bets. Um, for example, tech resources, incredibly cheap company, not one ETF, not one ETF on ETF.com website owns tech resources. These stocks are under-owned. Investors around the United States have too much money in tech, too much money in bonds, too much money in inflation debt, and that money will migrate very, very fast over the next six months. Larry, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Larry McDonald. Tim, what do you think? Uh, my movement of the people, um, as Guy said, I, you know, I think this is a case where uh, the, the resources trade, I, I continue to be very bullish on. And I, I do think there's a uh, both a long term cycle element of this. Remember, commodity cycles aren't one or two years. They're five and 10 years. And we're back there. Um, and, and remember, you don't buy commodities when they're cheap. You buy them when they're expensive. So some of these charts are just getting going in my view. Uh, my view on technology is that there will be a 20 percent pullback. And it's what I've been saying. I think if you look at the June 29 levels um, is which uh, a bunch of these stocks went off into la la land. And if you take that up to the high of the Nasdaq, 
that back to 245 in the triple Qs is a 20 percent pullback. And, and I don't think that that necessarily has to take the market out of bed. And frankly, with the Fed backdrop that we have, I don't think you'll get that. But yes, transports have outperformed the S&P uh, 25 percent in the last 85 sessions. And I, I think that will continue. All right. Coming up, the latest on TikTok from terms of a deal to possible changes at the top. We've got all the details and what it can mean for all the stocks involved. Plus, trucking higher will tell you what put shares of Ford on the move today. Stay with us. Fast Money's back right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following new developments on TikTok. A deal announcement could be coming within hours. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the latest. Julia. Melissa, we are expecting an announcement in the next day or so on the approval of a new entity that I'm told will be called TikTok Global. Getting some new details from a source close to the situation about why this proposal is expected to be approved and how it makes this new TikTok Global majority owned in the U.S. My source explaining that today ByteDance is 40% owned by U.S. investors, including KKR, Sequoia, General Atlantic, and others, and it's 51% owned by Chinese nationals. Now, a new TikTok Global would mirror those ownership stakes, so ByteDance selling anything more than about 10% to Oracle would make the company majority U.S. owned. Now, Oracle is expected to buy about 20% of this new company, TikTok Global. Now, the sale of an additional stake to Walmart would further increase U.S. ownership over that 50% mark. Now, multiple sources telling me that TikTok Global plans to file for an IPO on one of the U.S. stock exchanges in about a year. That would again further dilute Chinese ownership. And sources tell me that Walmart would get a seat on the board. The board would be subject to U.S. government approvals, I'm told by a source close to the situation. And the CEO and C-suite would be American. Now, this comes as the company is, of course, looking for a permanent CEO to replace Kevin Mayer. The New York Times reporting that among those that TikTok has talked to, Kevin Systrom, Instagram's founder and former CEO. We are awaiting word from the president on this. The deadline he set on the deal is this coming Sunday. But the fact that over 50 percent of the corporate ownership would be U.S. based seems very much key, Melissa, to approval of this deal. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, Karen, I'm wondering what your take is. The, the notion that Kevin Systrom could be the head of this new entity, TikTok Global, uh, might be even more of a challenge, it seems, to a Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's, there's, there's, that's an interesting uh, little side, um, uh, I guess, I don't know what you would call it, but um, it could be more of a challenge. That's right. And I was sort of thinking that what the deal was going to be, I'm not even clear what it is, I don't know if anyone's exactly clear what it is, would actually be an opportunity for Facebook, but um, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know who actually, if you will, ultimately be the head of it, but I, I think that to me, with the skin in the game that I guess I have is Walmart, which is interesting. I'm not, I don't understand what they're paying. We don't really know that. Uh, but I do think this is an opportunity for Walmart to continue their evolution, to take on Amazon and um, I think compete with Amazon. Dan, what's your take? 
I think Karen kind of nailed it. It really is about price for Oracle and for Walmart and what they're getting for it. We have no idea. No one's even talked about any of that. As far as the concern of our government, I didn't really think ownership was the big issue. I thought it was really about the data and where that data is going and how it's protected. Um, so to me, this story keeps changing. I would not be surprised that if we have some sort of announcement like this, the investors here in the U.S., the private investors are happy. Oracle's happy to get a cloud contract. Walmart's happy to invest in this sort of thing. And then in 2021, we're talking about a totally another different thing because as far as ByteDance is concerned, they don't have to shut down TikTok US. They can continue to grow the value of this asset and they have some important US partners. So to me, it sounds like a great deal for ByteDance. Guy, what do you think is the most important extrapolation of this story? It's interesting you mentioned Kevin Systrom. You're talking about the undercard there. And if memory serves, Mel, and you know about my memory, I think Kevin Systrom was on the Walmart board for about five years. So it's really interesting stuff going on here. And I think, again, on the margins, I think this is encouraging for Walmart. Dan and I went back and forth on Oracle the other day. I still think Oracle's a huge double top here at 60. But I think Tim Karen and Dan would agree that Walmart's in the in – the, getting the revaluation that Tim's talked about for a while. And I think at 136, Walmart, out of all these names just mentioned, is the play. A lot of cooks, though, in this mix now, um, Tim, to mix up my metaphors. <laughs> we don't know what Walmart's going to get out of this. And so should we impute the same value add to Walmart as we did before when we thought it was Microsoft Walmart? No, I, but I, I think Walmart shareholders are already back to, to square zero. I think the technology transfer that Walmart has proven has been effective for them and other acquisitions, that, that is something that uh, I, I think is what they're getting. And back to TikTok Global, I don't even know what that is. Um, and again, I, I, especially when we've struggled to understand who controls the algo, that's still in question. So I think this is good for Walmart. It does matter what price, but I think uh, Doug McMillan on a board seat of whatever this is continues an effort at Walmart that's positive. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. Airline execs descending on the White House today, looking for more aid from the government. But just what does the industry hope to save as a result? We'll dive into the numbers. Plus, fueling up, oil prices jumping for the second straight day. What the options market is saying about the sector and the stocks in it when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks falling again today as industry execs met at the White House looking for more aid. Let's get to Phil Lebeau, who's got the details. Phil. Melissa, we all know the story by now. The airlines within two weeks will begin 
uh, laying off thousands of workers unless there is an extension of the CARES Act, another $25 billion. That is what they went to the White House today saying, look, the Democrats and the Republicans, they all generally agree that there should be another aid package for us. How do we make this happen by October 1st? And remember, that's the key. It's got to happen by October 1st. Here's where the things, uh, where the talks stand right now. The payroll support plan that they are asking for, another $25 billion, that would extend payroll support for thousands of workers through March, really for all of the airline workers. It does have bipartisan support, but it needs a legislative bill. The White House has said maybe there's a smaller amount that we could put it to. The Democrats may not care for that. So again, it comes down to whether the Republicans and the Democrats in a broad sense can get together on this. As you take a look at the uh, shares of American United, remember, between those two airlines, they're planning on furloughing more than 30,000 workers. What about Southwest and Delta? Both of them believe that they can get past October 1st and not have any furloughs. But remember, They've had a number of their employees, as have American and United, who have taken unpaid leaves of absence. So that eases the payroll pressure there. And finally, when you take a look at Delta, remember that earlier today the airline said that it is upsizing the capital raise that it announced earlier this week tied into its frequent flyer program. On Monday they said, look, we're going to leverage this program for $6.5 billion. Today they upsized it, Melissa. They will now be borrowing $9 billion. Melissa? Phil, how much do the airlines have in that? How much have they raised either through secondary offerings or debt offerings? And how much have they gotten from the government? It strikes me that they've done a lot of capital raising, that they're still an outstanding $25 billion loan program that was set aside by Congress that they choose not to tap because they don't want a loan. They want a grant. Is that, is that the right distinction? Correct. 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 If they get another grant from the government to cover payroll, they would love that. But if the government comes to them and says, you can borrow billions more in order to pay these employees who you're not going to be using because you are going to become smaller airlines. They're all smaller now, and they will remain smaller. The airlines don't want that. Why? They have borrowed this year $67 billion. $67 billion is how much capital the airlines have raised in 2020. Almost all of that coming since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic set in. The vast majority of that money being borrowed is through the private market. The largest borrowers, Delta, when you add in the $9 billion that they just announced uh, today, it's up to $28.5 billion. Then you have United, American, and Southwest. And don't be surprised if we see billions more. The bottom line is this, Melissa. These guys have to get back to break even. And they're all burning through anywhere between 20 and $27 million a day, depending on the airline and depending on what you're looking at, what part of uh, the third quarter you're looking at. They're all targeting getting back to zero by the end of this year. The question is whether that happens or do you look out into the first quarter or the second quarter. And what so far have the trends been in terms of air travel, Phil, particularly through Labor Day? Have they improved at all? On they this improved one? for Labor Day, uh -huh. but, but they're still down 65 to 75 percent. You look at the last two days, 74 percent, 75 percent down compared to a year ago. And September and October are not terribly strong months for air travel. So it, you're not look, expecting anything great. And then, Melissa, you get into Thanksgiving and the holidays. If there's a COVID-19 resurgence, that means you may not get as many people flying for the holidays as you're anticipating. One last question, Phil. These airlines have gone through bankruptcy numerous times. Is yeah. that correct? Is that off well, the table? Do you, think, do you think that the government commitment to keeping the airlines afloat is so strong that bankruptcy this time around is off the table? 
I don't think bankruptcy is ever completely off the table, mm -hmm. but there is going to come a point where you have to wonder how much more the airlines can borrow. Some airlines have been much more aggressive about borrowing than other airlines. Right. But now when you start getting up into debt levels of 30, 35, 40 billion dollars, I mean, how much are you paying just to service that debt? And you were not terribly profitable in the past. You were profitable, but you were not, you know, ringing the cash registers to the point where 40 billion dollars in debt is a slam dunk. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago with all the details there. Tim, uh, Tim, if you're a shareholder in any of these airlines, should you be concerned that your equity could be wiped out at some point? Would you be? In some of them. I, I mm -hmm. mean, I think, I think in American, for example, um, I, I think in Delta, no. And, and, and I think some of this is a function of factors we don't know are, and are not controllable. Um, but but I, I do think that we've already priced in uh, a lot of pain. I, I, I think the fourth quarter cash burn could actually be worse than the third quarter. We've talked about the trends on international. Change fees are largely being wiped out. There's a major area of, of margin. So the story uh, may still have fundamentally changed even when we get a vaccine. But um, look at the charts on the airlines and, and look at where they are over the last six weeks. Um, these are actually really rock solid, steady charts. And you can make an argument that value investors are picking over. Some of this is a function of where the rest of the market was. And I think people needed other ideas. Uh, but there's no question uh, investors are underweight this sector. And there's no question that the biggest and the best capitalized are, are, are very secure through 2021. Uh, that's the story. And that's something I think you can invest in, albeit at a different multiple than before. Karen? Well, I sort of think about um, they're sort of live by the sword, die by the sword, and that they, you know there there's equity there. They could issue equity. They don't want to. I understand that. But I think about you know GM and the financial crisis. They didn't want to shut down. They they wanted to preserve jobs, and the government bailed them out. But the government, you know, they took a, a very big pound of flesh in a giant equity position. I don't know why that's off the table here. I feel like it should be. I don't want people to lose their jobs, but I think that, you know, they've operated in the free market. This was through no fault of their own. They find themselves in an awful situation. But to have the government bail them out and, and not have some, uh, not be getting paid for it, I don't understand why, why it should be that way. Especially when there are so many other industries that have had so much pain inflicted on them because of this man-made shutdown to begin with. I mean, there are restaurants, there's retailers, there are hotels. Uh, Dan, the list goes on and on. So why the airlines at this point after they've been given $25 billion? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think the airline lobby is a lot better than the restaurant lobby, if you think about it. Obviously, the restaurant business is a lot of small businesses, and they are really struggling, and there's millions and millions of workers. If you just look at, you add up all the jobs in the airline business, I think you probably have less than a million workers. Um, you know, so there's definitely going to be some consolidation. It's very sad to lose jobs for any reason, but this is an industry that often gets inflated no matter what the crisis is it's going to be smaller and behavior is going to be different. So if the government's going to think about, no matter if it's bipartisan or not, how to help workers, how to continue this PPP um, sort of program here, um, you know, they're going to have to consider other industries too. It just can't be the airlines. Guy, would you invest in airlines or do you think there's a risk? No, I think it's tradable. Uh, but, you know, so the short answer is I think there have and have nots. And I'm with Tim on the Delta mm -hmm. front. Delta has traded well. But quickly, I know you went to the Harvard and you read a lot of Shakespeare. And I say heavy is the head that wears the crown, Mel. And I say that because you said before it's very hard to have foreseen this coming. You're right. 
but I don't run the major airlines. I don't make tens of millions of dollars. You have to plan for a rainy day. I mentioned that because they bought stock back hand over fist. And now, again, they're all going up to Capitol Hill with hat in hand. It, it, and I totally sympathize with potentially 30,000 of our fellow Americans that could be out of a job. I totally get that. Uh, but this, to me, is at the, hand, at the hands of the executives. They got themselves into it to a large extent, and they got to figure out a way to get themselves out. And they can do it, by the way, in the secondary market with their stock. It might not be the most savory thing to do, but there are ways to combat this, in my opinion. Coming up, this auto company topping the tape today. We will tell you what it is and what gave the stock a big boost on a down day. And later, longtime tech analyst Steve Milanovic has seen more than one bubble boil and burst over the years. And after this most recent pullback, you're going to want to hear where he sees the tech sector heading next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Ford topping the tape today. The automaker breaking ground on a plant that will build its new electric F-150 pickup. Ford saying the truck will debut in 2022. Guy, you going to buy this truck? You know, no. I, am I going to buy the truck? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, do I look... I mean, do I look like a Ford F-150? You don't seem like I mean, you have much to pick up. Like you Tim, don't have but... anything to pick up. No. That's my guess. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And who, so why should I go drive into the 7-Eleven or the Acme to buy a gallon of milk in my F-150? It's not for me. Neither is the stock, by the way. Yeah, it's bounced off the March lows in a meaningful way. But you go back for a decade on what's been the greatest stock market in history and arguably probably the best time to be an automaker in history. And the stock's done nothing. So... You know, F-150 aside in 2022, what's going to change the narrative for these names? And, and I don't think this is it. So, no. Carvana, on the other hand, which has sold off off its recent high, is the place you want to be. Well, we've seen, the, we've seen the premium afforded to General Motors with its EV strategy. And here we have Ford. They're launching this F-150, electrified F-150, a bestseller car. They sold 900,000 of these guys, a fuel-powered ones, last year. And now they have this and an investment in Rivian, Tim. So I guess the question here is, are they not being afforded enough of a premium for their EV ambitions? Look, they're definitely not. In fact, they're, they're being discounted based upon balance sheet issues and concern uh, really around the balance sheet. Um, so I, I think if you look at their second quarter numbers, first of all, they were very strong numbers. They, they were better than GM's numbers on a, on a relative basis in terms of free cash flow uh, and EBIT and, and even gross margin. Um, I, I think, the, you know, the F-150 is arguably the, the, the most popular car in America, uh, and it's certainly the most profitable car they produce. You get into EV land, why can't this be a major competitor? And again, um, this is a place where I think a lot of Americans are willing to actually buy a Ford over a Tesla. But um, does it begin to even uh, get any of, of an EV valuation? No, it has not. So um, at times, Ford, Guy talked about it's been one of the worst performers on a relative basis to the S&P, but there have been periods where owning Ford, especially owning Ford after the crisis and owning it after balance sheet issues, um, the, the, the surprise COVID victory of automakers is not something people were pricing in. I think they've been slow to figure that out uh, and just how much both used car and new car sales are actually going to be a tailwind for the next two years. Yeah, I think you take a shot. All right, coming up, more on today's tech sell-off. You will hear from a man who has spent nearly four decades covering this space, where Wolf Research's Steve Milanovic sees us headed from here. And later, crude oil surging higher today, and there is one key name in the energy space that option traders are betting on. That name, when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out crude oil shaking off today's sell-off and surging higher. The energy trade heating up with crude gaining 10 percent in just the past week. Option traders are focused on one big name in this space. Bonowin Eisen has the action. Hey, Bonowin. Hey, how's it going, Melissa? Thank you. So, yeah, crude has bounced off that $36 level and has really made a significant tear higher. What I'll tell you is what I'm seeing from the options that people are kind of fading this rally and taking profit. So taking a look at Halliburton, you can see the calls outpace puts two to one, but the open interest is more evenly distributed. So that keep that in consideration. And if you look at the at the money options out to October, they're implying about a 12 and a half percent move in either direction between now and then. And the notable trade that I that really caught my eye was a sale of five thousand of the 14 calls at about $1.40. Now, this was a closing trade. So again, people are taking some profits here. Your break even is at 15.40, which is just about 4% higher than where we currently are. But again, a closing trade. Anecdotally, there was a sell of the XLE 30 strike puts, about 15% out of the money. So again, looks like people are expecting this thing to be range bound, using the strength in crude to take profits in the space. All right. Thanks for that, Bono. And see you soon for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, it is the best performing sector this year, but are more record highs really in store for tech. One top strategist lays out the road ahead. And as we had to break, check out the Kramer cam. Jim is tackling the sports betting boom with the CEO of Penn National Gaming. Catch that interview top of the hour. Meantime, much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tech down more than 10 percent from its recent peak hit in early September, but the sector is still the best performer this year. So what's on deck for tech? Let's ask top strategist Steve Milanovich with Wolf Research. Steve, welcome back to Fast Money. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Tim Melissa. Thanks and for a, having me. A happy belated birthday. I understand your birthday was on Monday, so happy belated birthday. Um, and it was an important milestone, which we will get to in just a moment. But, Steve, I, I first wanted to get to all of the changes that you've seen in technology. You've lived through past bubbles, and a lot of people are trying to make the comparison of the time now to the Internet bubble. And I'm wondering if you see that comparison at all. Yeah, Melissa, I think it, it rhymes. It's clearly not exactly the same thing. The multiples actually aren't as high as they were back then. Uh, you had companies like Pets.com that seemed to make no sense, and yet today you have Chewy, which is doing quite well on the Internet. So I think what we've seen is the maturation of the Internet into real businesses. Uh, in the software space, we have SaaS, we have cloud. So there are a lot of things going on that create very large TAMs for tech. Having said that, I think uh, what, what commonality is that the Fed has been extremely easy. Back then it was money for Y2K, now it's to offset COVID. So I do think we've gone to extremes. For example, the percentage of tech stocks over their 200-day moving average recently hit 80% for the first time in this rally, and it's now bouncing off that. You mentioned that tech stocks are down about 10%. They've still got another 10 or 12% to go to get back to their 200-day moving average. So I think at this point you would say it's a relatively normal correction. We'll see how it plays out. Hey, Steve, it's Dan. Great to have you on here. Um, just, just, a, just a quick one here. You know, you look at this MAGA complex, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon, they're this trillion-dollar club, some are $2 trillion club. If we were to have a pullback over the next few months, six months, or whatever it is, what is the one name of those names that you're buying hand over fist that you think a decade out will be a $5 trillion company? 
Well, that's a good question. You know, they're still fairly reasonably priced. And, you know, there's a lot of regulatory risk to the FANG type names. But historically, what we've seen is that the regulatory problems weren't what torpedoed IBM and Microsoft. It was new disruptive technology. And I generally don't see that for these names. So for the most part, I'd be wanting to buy most of them on weakness. Um, I think Facebook is interesting. We talk a lot about the optionality in, uh, of companies uh, moving into adjacencies. And as much as Facebook is attacked for many things these days, they have a lot of optionality going into um, augmented reality with Oculus, trying to do currency and so forth. So that would probably still be one I'd be very interested in. But in general, I think the, the MAGA names are ones that I want to be buying on weakness still. Steve, it's Guy. Listen, congratulations on an incredible career. And I want to ask you about that quickly. Now, you've been doing this a long time and you've done it amazingly well. Is there one you wish you got back in terms of calls or stocks or just thematic things when you think about over the last you know, couple decades? That's a great question, Guy. Um, it's funny because I'm probably known for covering IBM. IBM's relative performance peaked in 1987, so it's been important to find other names along the way. I was fortunate to pick up Apple around 2001, and the stock was in the single digits, uh, you know, considering splits. I, I wish I'd been even stronger on that one. Interestingly, I actually covered alternative energy for a few years. I was one of the first analysts and probably the first tech analyst to cover Tesla. And the stock went from 15 to 25. And kind of like with Apple back in the day, you thought, wow, that was fantastic. A lot of people got out of the stock. No idea it was going to go up 10x from there. And over time, I kind of went over the auto analyst. So Tesla is one of the names that I kind of wish I'd been able to keep coverage of over time. Um, but it's funny, as an analyst, you can get associated with one big name, whether it's a Microsoft, an Apple, a Tesla, you can make a career on that. Yeah. Um, fortunately, you're not the only association, Steve, isn't with IBM at this point. <laughs> it's with many of the other great calls you've made over the course of your career. And the reason why we're saying this um, for the audience out there, Steve is retiring at the end of the month, um, hence the mention of his birthday. He turned 60 on Monday. So, Steve, congratulations on your retirement, on your birthday. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights on CNBC. We always love having you on. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Melissa. Very kind of you, and I, I appreciate all your interest. All right. Steve Milanovic, we wish you the best. Thank you. Tim, what's the one uh, area in tech that you think that you, didn't, you underestimated over the past decade? <laughs> well, there's so many. Boy, where to start? Um, I, I do think that what Steve has pointed out is that great analysts find a way to look at the world differently, and the world changes, and, and technology never uh, has there been you know more kind of generational and, and light speed changes. So um, for me, it's, it's about uh, someone who's been born out of a value construct, seeing uh, high growth names, high multiple names, and, and holding my nose at many times over the last uh, five to 10 years. Understanding that certain trends um, and judging companies on, for example, EV to sales isn't, you know, isn't taboo. Uh, and I think in, in tech, when you have top line growth, it is worth paying for. There have been uh, game changing companies that I've certainly missed, and I'm trying to do that differently every day. All right. Up next, final trade. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, we talked about Ford earlier in the show. GM's chart is better than Ford, and certainly Nikola or not, there is some understanding of their hydrogen fuel and their EV tech battery technology GM. By the way, we lost Guy, so we're not going to go to him. But we got Karen. Oh. What's your final trade? Oh, no. All right. 
Yeah, so I dipped my toe into Ulta. I was so upset last time after they put up those gigantic earnings that showed they were really adapting to online, but I think they are also a reopening trade, so Ulta. Dan Nathan. Yeah, keep an eye on Lyft, breaking that downtrend that's been in place since its IPO in March 2019. And just one final shout-out, Steve Milanovic. He was a great one here. We're going to miss him. Um, thanks for coming on, and the best. Guy, we got you back. <laughs> FCX, bye, Mel. Mad Money starts now. <laughs> this podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.